This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Point by Charles D'Ambrosio. After a summer, I'd have the dirt on everyone, whether I wanted it or not. But I had developed a priestly sense of my position. The story was chosen by Matthew Clam, the author of Sam the Cat and Other Stories. Eight of his stories have been published in The New Yorker, and back in 1999, he was included on the magazine's list of 20 writers for the 21st century. Hi, Matt. Hi, Deborah. So The Point came out in The New Yorker in 1990, and it was the, the title story of Charles D'Ambrosio's first collection, which was published in 95. Then his second collection, The Deadfish Museum, was published in 2006. When did you first come across his work? I read this story when it appeared in The New Yorker. Was it the first piece of his you'd read? Yes, it was. And the interesting thing is that it's stuck with me ever since. It's a story that I've kind of kept close all these years. Um, I've had a chance to meet him at uh, an event here in Washington, and I I didn't because uh, I love this story so much. I didn't want to taint my experience of the story with my (laughs) impressions of Charles. But I did hear a story from a guy who was at Iowa, the University of Iowa, when he was there, which is enough for me, which is about how uh, they were playing softball one day and Charles and his dog showed up. And it was was just like that scene in Cannery Row. A guy just walks up, grabs the bat, and knocks this towering home run and then (laughs) picks his dog's leash up and, and goes back home. I always love that story. And and the point for you is the home run. Yeah, I guess it is, right. You volunteered to do the podcast purely so that you could read this story. What is it about the point that gets you so much? There's so much about this story that I love. It's a huge story. It deals with really big issues. It deals with midlife crisis and adultery and divorce and alcoholism and mental illness, PTSD, suicide, war. And yet, It's a sort of lighthearted story, and there's something incredibly perky about the narrator's attitude. In a way, it is sort of instructive for me about how to deal with the dark matter in life. The story is told from the point of view of a a young boy, a 13-year-old boy. Do you think there's anything else that uh, listeners should pay attention to as they hear it? I guess one thing is that the less-than-direct path that the story takes is, in a way, a comment on writing. Great. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Matt Clam reading Charles D'Ambrosio's story, The Point. I had been lying awake after my nightmare, a nightmare in which Father and I bought helium balloons at a circus. I tied mine around my finger, and Father tied his around a string bean and lost it. After that, I lay in the dark, tossing and turning, sleepless from all the sand in my sheets and all the uproar out in the living room. Then the door opened, and for a moment the blade of bright light blinded me. The party was still going full blast, and now, with the door ajar and my eyes adjusting, I glimpsed the silver smoke swirling in the light and all the people suspended in it, hovering around as if they were angels in heaven, some kind of heaven where the host serves highballs and the men smoke cigars and the women all smell like rotting fruit. Everything was hysterical out there, 
the men laughing, the ice clinking, the women shrieking. A woman crossed over and sat on the edge of my bed, bending over me. It was mother. She was backlit, a vague, looming silhouette, but I could smell lily of the valley and something else. Lemon rind from the bitter twist she always chewed when she reached the watery bottom of her vodka and tonic. When father was alive, she rarely drank. But after he shot himself, you could say she really let herself go. Dearest, she said. Hi, Mom, I said. Your old mother's bombed, dearest, flat-out bombed. That's okay, I said. She liked to confess these things to me, although it was always obvious how tanked she was, and I never cared. I considered myself a pro at this business. It's a party, I said casually. Live it up. Oh, God, she laughed. I don't know how I got this way. What do you want, Mom? Yes, dear, she said. There was something I wanted. She looked out the window. At the sail-white moon beyond the black branches of the apple tree and then she looked into my eyes. What was it I wanted? Her eyes were moist and mapped with red veins. I came here for a reason, she said, but I've forgotten it now. Maybe if you go back, you'll remember, I suggested. Just then, Mrs. Gurney leaned through the doorway. Well, she said, slumping down on the floor. Mrs. Gurney had bright silver hair and a dark tan, the sort of tan that women around here get when their marriages start busting up. I could see the gaudy gold chains looped around Mrs. Gurney's dark brown neck, winking in the half-light before they plunged from sight into the darker gulf between her breasts. That's it, Mother said. Mrs. Gurney, she's worse off than me. She's really blitzo. Blotto? Blitzed? Hand me my jams, I said. I slipped my swim trunks on underneath the covers. For years, I'd been escorting these old inebriates over the sandy playfield and along the winding boardwalks and up the salt-whitened steps of their homes, brewing coffee, fixing a little toast or heating leftovers, searching the medicine cabinet for aspirin and vitamin B, setting a glass of water on the nightstand or the coffee table if they'd collapsed on the couch, and even, once, tucking some old farts snugly into bed between purple silk sheets. I'd guide these drunks home and hear stories about the alma mater, Theta Xi, Boeing stock splits, Cadillacs, divorce, Nembutal, infidelity, and often the people I helped home gave me three or four bucks for listening to all their sad business. I suppose it was better than a paper route. Father, who'd been a medic in Vietnam, made it my job when I was ten, and at thirteen I considered myself a hardcore veteran, treating every trip like a mission. Okay, Mrs. Gurney, I said, upsy-daisy. She held her hand out, and I grabbed it, leaned back, and hoisted her to her feet. She stood there a minute, listing this way, that way, like a sailor who hadn't been to port in a while. Mother kissed her wetly on the lips, and then said to me, hurry home. I'm toasted, Mrs. Gurney explained, just toasted. Let's go out the back way, I said. It would only take longer if we had to navigate our way through the party, offering excuses and making those ridiculous promises adults always make to one another when the party's over. Hey, we'll do it again, they assure each other, as if that needed to be said. And I'd noticed how, with the summer ending and Labor Day approaching, 
all the adults would acquire a sort of desperate, clinging manner, as if this were all going to end forever and the good times would never be seen again. Of course, I now realize that the end was just an excuse to party like maniacs. The softball tournament, the salmon derby, the cocktails, the clam bakes, the barbecues would all happen again. They always had and they always would. Anyway, out the back door and down the steps. Once, I'd made a big mistake with a retired account executive, a friend of father's. Fred was already falling down drunk, so it didn't help at all that he had two more drinks on the way out the door, apologizing for his condition, which no one noticed, and boisterously offering bad stock tips. I finally got Fred going and dragged him partway home in a wagon, dumping his fat ass in front of his house. Close enough, I figured, wedged in against some driftwood so the tide wouldn't wash him out to sea. He didn't get taken out to sea, but the sea did come to him as the tide rose, and when he woke, he was lassoed in green kelp. Fortunately, he'd forgotten the whole thing, how he'd got where he was, where he'd been before that, but it scared me that a more or less right-hearted attempt on my part might end in such an ugly mess. By now, though, I'd worked this job so long I knew all the tricks. The moon was full and immaculately white in a blue-black sky. The wind funneled down Saratoga Passage, blowing hard, blowing south, and Mrs. Gurney and I were struggling against it, tacking back and forth across the playfield. Mrs. Gurney strangled her arm around my neck, and we wobbled along. Bits of sand shot in our eyes and blinded us. Keep your head down, Mrs. Gurney. I'll guide you. She plopped herself down in the sand, nesting there as if she were going to lay an egg. She unbuckled her sandals and tossed them behind her. I ran back and fetched them from the sand. Her skirt fluttered in the wind and flew up in her face. Her silver hair, which was usually shellacked with spray and coiffed to resemble a crash helmet, cracked and blew apart, splintering like a clutch of straw. Why'd I drink so damn much, she screamed. I'm toasted. Really, Kurt, I'm totally toasted. I shouldn't have drunk so damn much. Well, you did, Mrs. Gurney, I said, bending toward her. That's not the problem now. The problem now is how to get you home. Why, goddammit? Trust me, Mrs. Gurney, home is where you want to be. One tip about these drunks. My opinion is that it pays in the long run to stick as close as possible to the task at hand. We're just going home, you assure them, and tomorrow it will all be different. I've found if you stray too far from the simple goal of getting home and going to sleep, you let yourself in for a lot of unnecessary hell. You start hearing about their whole miserable existence, and suddenly it's the most important thing in the world to fix it all up right then. Certain things in life can't be repaired, as in father's situation, and that's always sad but I believe there's nothing in life that can be remedied under the influence of a half a dozen planter's punches. Now, not everyone on the point was a crazed rum hound, but the ones that weren't, the people who accurately assessed their capacities and balanced their intake accordingly, the people who never got lost, who never passed out in flower beds or, adrift in the maze of narrow boardwalks, gave up the search for home altogether and walked into any old house that was nearby, they... The people who never did these things and knew what they were about never needed my help. They also weren't too friendly with my mother and didn't participate in her weekly bashes. The point was kind of divided that way, 
between the upright, seaworthy residents and the easily overturned friends of my mother's. Mrs. Gurney lived about a half mile up the beach in a bungalow with a lot of Gothic additions. The scuttlebutt on Mrs. Gurney was that while she wasn't divorced, her husband didn't love her. This kind of knowledge was part of my job, something I didn't relish but accepted as an occupational hazard. I knew all the gossip, the rumors, the rising and falling fortunes of my mother's friends. After a summer, I'd have the dirt on everyone, whether I wanted it or not. But I had developed a priestly sense of my position, and whatever anyone told me in a plastered, blathering confessional fit was as safe and privileged as if it had been spoken in a private audience with the Pope. Still, I hoped Mrs. Gurney would stick to the immediate goal and not start talking about how sad and lonely she was or how cruel her husband was or what was going to become of us all, etc. The wind rattled the swings back and forth, chains creaking, and whipped the ragged flag, which flew at half-mast. Earlier that summer, Mr. Crutchfield, the insurance lawyer, had fallen overboard and drowned while hauling in his crab trap. He always smeared his bait box with mentholatum, which is illegal, and the crabs went crazy for it, and I imagined that in his greed, catching over the limit, he couldn't haul the trap up but wouldn't let go either, and the weight pulled him into the sea, and he had a heart attack and drowned. The current floated him all the way to Everett before he was found, white and bloated as soggy bread. Mrs. Gurney was squatting on the ground, lifting fistfuls of sand and letting them course through her fingers, the grains falling away as through an hourglass. Mrs. Gurney, we're not making much progress. She rose to her feet, gripping my pant leg, my shirt, my sleeve, then my neck. We started walking again. The sand was deep and loose, and with every step we sank down through the soft layers until a solid purchase was gained in the hard-packed sand below, and we could push off in baby steps. The night was sharp and alive with shadows. Everything, even the tiny tufted weeds that sprouted through the sand, had a shadow, and this deepened the world, made it seem thicker, with layers, and more layers, and then a darkness into which I couldn't see. You know, Mrs. Gurney said, the thing about these parties is, the thing about drinking is, you know, getting so damnably blasted is. She stopped and tried to mash her wild hair back down into place and, no longer holding on to anything other than her head, fell back on her ass into the sand. I waited for her to finish her sentence, then gave up, knowing it was gone forever. Her lipstick, I noticed, was smeared clownishly around her mouth, fixing her lips into a frown or maybe a smirk. She smelled different from my mother, like pepper, I thought, and bananas. She was taller than me, and a little plump, with a nose shaped exactly like her head, like a miniature replica of it, really, stuck right in the middle of her face. We finally got off the playfield and onto the boardwalk that fronted the seawall. A wooden wagon leaned over in the sand. I tipped it upright. Here you go, Mrs. Gurney, I said, pointing to the wagon. Hop aboard. I'm okay, she protested. I'm fine. Fine and dandy. You're not fine, Mrs. Gurney. The caretaker built these wagons out of old hatches from P.T. boats. They were heavy, monstrous, and made to last. Once you got them rolling, they cruised. Mrs. Gurney got in, not without a good deal of operatics, 
and when I finally got her to shut up and sit down, I started pulling. I'd never taken her home before, but on a scale of one to ten, ten being the most obstreperous, I was rating her about a six at this point. She stretched out like Cleopatra floating down the Nile in her barge. Stop the world, she sang. I want to get off. I vaguely recalled that as a song from my parents' generation. It reminded me of my father, who shot himself in the head one morning. Did I already say this? He was sitting in the grass parking lot above the point. Officially, his death was ruled an accident, a death by misadventure, and everyone believed that he had in fact been cleaning his gun, but Mother told me otherwise one night. Mother had a batch of lame excuses she tried on me, but it only made me sad to see her groping for an answer and falling way short. I wished she'd come up with something just for herself. Father used to say that everyone up here was dinky dao, which is Vietnamese patois for crazy. At times, after father died, I thought mother was going a little dinky dao herself. I leaned forward, my head bent against the wind. Off to starboard, the sea was black, with a line of moonlit white waves continually crashing on the shore. Far off, I could see the dark headlands of Hat Island, the island itself rising from the water like a breaching whale, and then, beyond, the soft, blue, irresolute lights of Everett on the distant mainland. I stopped for a breather, and Mrs. Gurney was gone. She was sitting on the boardwalk a few houses back. Look at all these houses, Mrs. Gurney said, swinging her arms around. Let's go, Mrs. Gurney. Another fucking great summer at the point. The wind seemed to be refreshing, Mrs. Gurney, but that was a hard one to call. Often, drunks seemed on the verge of sobering up, and then, just as soon as they got themselves nicely balanced, they plunged off the other side into depression. Poor Crutchfield, Mrs. Gurney said. We stood in front of Mr. Crutchfield's house. An upstairs light, in the bedroom, I knew, was on, although the lower stories were dark and empty. And Lucy, God, such grief. They loved each other, Kurt, Mrs. Gurney frowned. They loved each other, and now... Actually, the Crutchfields hadn't loved each other. Information I alone was privy to. Lucy's grief, I was sure, had to do with the fact that her husband died in a state of absolute misery, and now she would never be able to change things. In Lucy's mind, he would be forever screwing around, and she would be forever waiting for him to cut it out and come home. After he died, she spread the myth of their reconciliation, and everyone believed it, but I knew it to be a lie. Mr. Crutchfield's sense of failure over the marriage was enormous. He blamed himself, as perhaps he should have. But I remember, one night earlier in the summer, telling him it was okay, that if he was unhappy with Lucy, it was fine to fuck around. He said, you think so? I said, sure, go for it. Of course, you might ask, what did I know? At 13, I'd never even smooched with a girl, but I had nothing to lose by encouraging him. He was drunk, he was miserable, and I had a job, and that job was to get him home and try to prevent him from dwelling too much on himself. It was that night, the night I took Mr. Crutchfield home, as I walked back to our house, that I developed the theory of the black hole, 
and it helped me immeasurably in conducting this business of steering drunks around the point. The idea was this, that at a certain age, a black hole emerged in the middle of your life, and everything got sucked into it, and you knew, forever afterward, that it was there, this dense, negative space, and yet you went on. You struggled, you made your money, you had some babies, you got wasted, and you pretended it wasn't there and never looked directly at it, if you could manage the trick. I imagine that this black hole existed somewhere just behind you and also somewhere just in front of you, so that you were always leaving it behind and entering it at the same time. I hadn't worked out the spatial thing too carefully, but that's what I imagined. Sometimes the hole was only a pinprick in the mind. Often it was vast. Frequently it fluctuated, beating like a heart. But it was always there, and when you got drunk, thinking to escape, you only noticed it more. Anyway, when I discovered this, much like an astronomer gazing out at the universe, I thought I had the key, and it became a policy with me never to let one of my drunks think too much and fall backward or forward into the black hole. We're going home, I would say to them. We're just going home. I wondered how old Mrs. Gurney was and guessed 37. I imagined her black hole was about the size of a sewer cap. Mrs. Gurney sat down on the hull of an overturned life raft. She reached up under her skirt and pulled her nylons off, rolling them down her legs, tossing the little black doughnuts into the wind. I fetched them, too, and stuffed them into the straps of her sandals. Much better, she said. We're not far now, Mrs. Gurney. We'll have you home in no time. She managed to stand up on her own. She floated past me, heading toward the sea. A tangle of ghostly gray driftwood, old tree stumps, logs loosed from booms, planks, barred the way, being too treacherous for her to climb in such a drunken state, I thought. But Mrs. Gurney just kept going, her hair exploding in the wind, her skirt billowing like a sail, her arms wavering like a trapeze artist's high up on the wire. Mrs. Gurney, I called. I want... She started but the wind tore her words away. Then she sat down on a log, and when I got there, she was holding her head in her hands and vomiting between her legs. Vomit, and the spectacle of adults vomiting, was one of the unpleasant aspects of this job. I hated to see these people in such an abject position. Still, after three years, I knew in which closets the mops and sponges and cleansers were kept in quite a few houses on the point. I patted Mrs. Gurney's shoulder and said, That's okay, that's okay, just go right ahead. You'll feel much better when it's all out. She choked and spat, and a trail of silver hung from her lip down to the sand. Oh, damn it all, Kurt, just damn it all to hell. She raised her head. Look at me, just look at me, will you? She looked a little wretched, but all right. I'd seen worse. Have a cigarette, Mrs. Gurney, I said. Calm down. I didn't smoke myself, thinking it was a disgusting habit, but I'd observed from past experience that a cigarette must taste good to a person who has just thrown up. A cigarette or two seemed to calm people right down, giving them something simple to concentrate on. Mrs. Gurney handed me her cigarettes. I shook one from the pack and stuck it in my mouth. 
I struck half a dozen matches before I got one going, cupping the flame against the wind in the style of old war movies. I puffed the smoke. I passed Mrs. Gurney the cigarette, and she dragged on it, abstracted, gazing off. I waited and let her smoke in peace. I feel god-awful, Mrs. Gurney groaned. It'll go away, Mrs. Gurney. You're drunk. We just have to get you home. Look at my skirt, she said. True, she'd messed it up a little, barfing on herself, but it was nothing a little soap and water couldn't fix. I told her that. How old am I, Kurt, she retorted. I pretended to think it over, then aimed low. Twenty-nine? Good God! Mrs. Gurney stared out across the water, at the deep black shadow of Hat Island, and I looked too, and it was remarkable, the way that darkness carved itself out of the darkness all around. But I could marvel over this when I was off duty. I'm thirty-eight, Kurt, she screamed. Thirty-eight, thirty-eight, thirty-eight! I was losing her. She was heading for a ten on a scale of ten. On a dark night, bumping around, she said, you can't tell the difference between thirty-eight and forty. Fifty! Sixty! She pitched her cigarette in a high, looping arc that exploded against a log in a spray of gold sparks. Where am I going, goddammit? You're going home, Mrs. Gurney. Hang tough. I want to die. A few boats rocked in the wind, and a seal moaned out on the diving raft, the cries carrying away from us, south, downwind. A red warning beacon flashed out on the sandbar. Mrs. Gurney clambered over the driftwood and weaved across the wet sand toward the sea. She stood by the shoreline, and for a moment I thought she might hurl herself into the breach, but she didn't. She stood on the shore's edge, the white waves swirling at her feet, and dropped her skirt around her ankles. She was wearing a silky white slip underneath, the sheen like a bike reflector in the moonlight. She waded out into the water and squatted down, scrubbing her skirt. Then she walked out of the water and stretched herself on the sand. Mrs. Gurney? I've got the fucking spins. Her eyes were closed. I suggested that she open them. It makes a difference, I said. And sit up, Mrs. Gurney. That makes a difference, too. You've had the spins? Mrs. Gurney asked. Don't tell me you sneak into your mother's liquor cabinet, Kurt Pittman. Don't tell me that. Please, just please spare me that. Jesus Christ, I couldn't take it. Really, I couldn't take it, Kurt. Just shut the fuck up about that, all right? I'd never taken a drink in my life. I don't drink, Mrs. Gurney. I don't drink, Mrs. Gurney, she repeated. You prig. I wondered what time it was and how long we'd been gone. Do you know how suddenly life can turn, Mrs. Gurney asked, how bad it can get? At first I didn't say anything. This kind of conversation didn't lead anywhere. Mrs. Gurney was drunk and belligerent. She was looking for an enemy. We need to get you home, Mrs. Gurney, I said. That's my only concern. Your only concern, Mrs. Gurney said, imitating me again. Lucky you. I stood there, slightly behind Mrs. Gurney. I was getting tired, but sitting down in the sand might indicate to her that where we were was okay, and it wasn't. We needed to get beyond this stage, this tricky stage of groveling in the sand and feeling depressed, and go to sleep, 
We're not getting anywhere like this, I said. I've got cottonmouth, Mrs. Gurney said. She made fish movements with her mouth. She was shivering, too. She clasped her knees and tucked her head between her legs, trying to ball herself up like a potato bug. Kurt, Mrs. Gurney said, looking up at me. Do you think I'm beautiful? I switched the sandals I was holding to the other hand. First, I'll tell you what I said, and then I'll tell you what I was thinking. I said yes, and I said it immediately. And why? Because I sensed that questions that didn't receive an immediate response fell away into silence and were never answered. They got sucked into the black hole. I'd observed this, and I knew the trick was to close the gap in Mrs. Gurney's mind to bridge that spooky silence between the question and the answer. There she was, drunk, sick, shivering, loveless, sitting in the sand and asking me, a mere boy, if I thought she was beautiful. I said yes, because I knew it wouldn't hurt or cost me anything but one measly breath, though that wasn't really my answer. The answer was in the immediacy, the swiftness of my response, stripped of all uncertainty and hesitation. Yes, I said. Mrs. Gurney lay down again in the sand. She unbuttoned her blouse and unfastened her brassiere. I scanned the dark and fixed my eyes on a tug hauling a barge north through the passage up to the San Juans. Mrs. Gurney sat up. She shrugged out of her blouse and slipped her bra off and threw them into the wind. Again, I fetched her things from where they fell and held the bundle at my side, waiting. That's better, Mrs. Gurney said, arching her back and stretching her hands in the air, waggling them as if she were some kind of dignitary in a parade. The wind blowing, it's like a spirit washing over you. We should go, Mrs. Gurney. Sit, Kurt, sit, she said, patting the wet sand. The imprint of her hand remained there a few seconds, then flattened and vanished. The tide was coming in fast, and it would be high tonight, with the moon full. I crouched down a few feet away. So you think I'm beautiful, Mrs. Gurney said. She stared ahead, not looking at me, letting the words drift in the wind. This isn't really a question of beauty or not beauty, Mrs. Gurney. No? No, I said. I know your husband doesn't love you, Mrs. Gurney. That's the problem here. Beauty, she sang. No, like they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You don't have a beholder anymore, Mrs. Gurney. The moon and the stars, she said, the wind and the sea. Wind, sea, stars, moon. We were in uncharted territory, and it was my fault. I'd let us stray from the goal, and now it was nowhere in sight. I had to steer this thing back on course, or we'd end up talking about God. Get dressed, Mrs. Gurney. It's cold. This isn't good. We're going home. She clasped her knees and rocked back and forth. She moaned. It's so far. It's not far, I said. We can see it from here. Someday I'm leaving all this to you, Mrs. Gurney said, waving her hands around in circles, pointing at just about everything in the world. When I get it from my husband after the divorce, I'm leaving it to you. That's a promise, Kurt. I mean that. It'll be in my will. 
You'll get a call and you'll know I'm dead. But you'll be happy. You'll be very happy because all of this will belong to you. Her house was only a hundred yards away. A windsock, full of the air that passed through it, whipped back and forth on a tall white pole. Her two kids had been staying in town most of that summer. I wasn't sure if they were up this weekend. She'd left the porch light on for herself. You'd like all this, right? Mrs. Gurney asked. Now is not the time to discuss it, I said. Mrs. Gurney lay back down in the sand. The stars have tails, she said, when they spin. I looked up. They seemed fixed in place to me. The first time I fell in love, I was 14. I fell in love when I was 15. I fell in love when I was 16, 17, 18. I just kept falling over and over, Mrs. Gurney said. This eventually led to marriage. She packed the lump of wet sand on her chest. It's so stupid. You know where I met him? I assumed she was referring to Jack, to Mr. Gurney. No, I said. On a golf course. Can you believe it? Do you golf, Mrs. Gurney? No, hell no. Does Jack? No. I couldn't help her. It's the stories that don't make sense that drunks like to repeat. From some people, I'd been hearing the same stories every summer for the last three years, the kind everyone thinks is special, never realizing how everyone tells pretty much the same one, never realizing how all those stories blend, one to the next, and bleed into each other. I'm thirsty, Mrs. Gurney said. I'm so homesick. We're close now, I said. That's not what I mean, she said. You don't know what I mean. Maybe not, I said. Please put your shirt on, Mrs. Gurney. I'll kill myself, Mrs. Gurney said. I'll go home and I'll kill myself. That won't get you anywhere. It'll show them. You'd just be dead, Mrs. Gurney. Then you'd be forgotten. Crutchfield isn't forgotten. Poor Crutchfield. The flag's at half-mast. This year, I said, Next year, it'll be back where it always is. My boys wouldn't forget. That was certainly true, I thought, but I didn't want to get into it. Mrs. Gurney sat up. She shook her head back and forth wildly, and sand flew from it. Then she stood, wobbling. I held the shirt out to her, looking down. She wiggled her toes, burrowing them into the sand. Look at me, Mrs. Gurney said. I'd rather not, Mrs. Gurney, I said. Tomorrow you'll be glad I didn't. For a moment we didn't speak, and into that empty space rushed the wind, the waves, the moaning seal out on the diving raft. I looked up into Mrs. Gurney's eyes, which were dark green and floating in tears. She stared back, but kind of vaguely, and I wondered what she saw. I had the feeling that the first to flinch would lose. She took the shirt from my hand. I looked. In this, I had no experience, but I knew what I saw was not young flesh. Her breasts sagged away like sacks of wet sand, slumping off to either side. They were quite enormous, I thought, although I had nothing to compare them with. There were long, whitish scars on them, as if a wild man or a bear had clawed her. 
The nipples were purple in the moonlight, and they puckered in the cold wind. The gold, squiggling loops of chain shone against the dark of her neck, and the V of her tan line made everything else seem astonishingly white. The tan skin of her chest looked like parchment, like the yellowed, crinkled page of some ancient text, maybe the Bible, or the Constitution, the original copy, or even the rough draft. Mrs. Gurney slipped the shirt over her shoulders and let it flap there in the wind. It blew off and tumbled down the beach. She sighed. Then she stepped closer and leaned toward me. I could smell her, the pepper, the bananas. Mrs. Gurney, I said, let's go home now. The tide was high enough for us to feel the first foamy white reaches of the waves wash around our feet. The receding waves dragged her shirt into the sea, and then the incoming waves flung it back. It hung there in the margin, agitated. We were looking into each other's eyes. Up so close, there was nothing familiar in hers. They were just glassy and dark and expressionless. It was then, I was sure, that her hand brushed the front of my trunks. I don't remember too much of what I was thinking, if I was, and this, this not thinking too clearly, might have been my downfall. What is it out there that indicates the right way? I might have gone down all the way. I might have sunk right there. I knew all the words for it, and they were all short and brutal. Fuck, poke, screw. A voice told me I could get away with it. Who will know the difference, the voice asked. It said, go for it. And I knew the voice, knew it was the same voice that told Mr. Crutchfield to go ahead, fuck around. We were alone, nothing out there but the moon and the sea. I looked at Mrs. Gurney, looked into her eyes, and saw two black lines pouring out of them and running in crazy patterns down her cheeks. I felt I should be gallant or tender and kiss Mrs. Gurney. I felt I should say something. Then I felt I should be quiet. It seemed as if the moment were poised, as if everything were fragile and held together with silence. We moved up the beach, away from the shore and the incoming tide, and the sand beneath the surface still held some of the day's warmth. I took off my T-shirt. Put this on, I said. She tugged it on, inside out, and I gathered up her sandals and stockings and her bra. We kept silent. We worked our way over the sand, over the tangle of driftwood, the wind heaving at us from the north. We crossed the boardwalk, and I held Mrs. Gurney's elbow as we went up the steps of her house. Inside, I found the aspirin and poured a glass of apple cider and brought these to her in bed, where she'd already curled up beneath a heavy Mexican blanket. She looked like she was sleeping underneath a rug. I'm thirsty, she said, and drank down the aspirin with the juice. A lamp was on. Mrs. Gurney's silver hair splayed out against the pillow, poking like bike spokes every which way. I knelt beside the bed, and she touched my hand and parted her lips to speak, but I squeezed her hand and her eyes closed. Soon she was asleep. As I was going downstairs, her two boys, Mark and Timmy, came out of their bedroom and stared at me from the landing. 
Mommy home? asked Timmy, who was three. Yeah, I said. She's in bed. She's sleeping. They stood there on the lighted landing, blinking and rubbing knuckles in their eyes, and I stood below them on the steps in the dark. Where's the sitter? I asked. She fell asleep, Timmy said. You guys should be asleep, too. I can't sleep, Timmy said. Tell a bedtime story. I don't know any bedtime stories, I said. Back home, inside our house, the bright light and smoke stung my eyes. The living room was crowded, but I knew everybody, the potters, the shanks, the capstans, etc. It was noisy and shrill, and someone had cranked up the Victrola, and one of my grandfather's old records was sending a sea of hissing static through the room. I could see on the mantel, through the curling smoke, the shrine mother had made for father, his silver star and purple heart, which he got in Lao Bao, up near Kaesan, near the DMZ when he was a medic. His diploma from medical school angled cockeyed off a cut nail. A foul ball he caught at a baseball game, his reading glasses, a pocket knife, a stethoscope, a framed Hippocratic oath, with snakes wreathed around what looked like a barber pole. I saw Mother flit through the kitchen with a silver cocktail shaker, jerking it like a percussion instrument. She just kept pacing like a caged animal, rattling cracked ice in the shaker. I couldn't hear any distinct voices above the party noise. I stood there a while. No one seemed to notice me until Fred, three sheets to the wind, as they say, hoisted his empty glass in the air and said, Hey, Captain! I went into the kitchen. Mother set down the shaker and looked at me. I gave her a hug. I'm back, I said. Then I crossed into my room and stripped the sheets from my bed. I hung them out the window and shook the sand away. I tossed the sheets back on the bed and stretched out, but I couldn't get to sleep. I got up and pulled one of Father's old letters out from under my mattress. I went out the back door. It was one of those nights on the point when the blowing wind, the waves breaking in crushed white lines against the shore, the grinding sand, the moon-washed silhouettes of the huddled houses, the slapping of buoys offshore, when all of this seems to have been going on for a long, long time, and you feel eternity looking down on you. I sat on the swing. The letter was torn at the creases, and I opened it carefully, tilting it into the moonlight. It was dated 1966 and written to Mother. The print was smudged and hard to see. First, the old news. Thank you for the necktie. I'm not sure when I'll get a chance to wear it, but thanks. Now for my news. I've been wounded, but don't worry. I'm okay. For several days, a company had been deployed on the perimeter of this village. The rumor was that somehow the fields had been planted with VC mines. The men work with tanks. Picture tanks moving back and forth over a field like huge lawnmowers. They clear the way by exploding the mines. Generally, VC mines are anti-personnel, and the idea is that the tanks are supposed to set off the mines and absorb the explosions. Tanks can easily sustain the blows, and the men inside are safe. A textbook operation. Simple. Yesterday, they set off 12 mines. 
Who knows how they got there? Clearing the perimeter took several days. Last night, they thought they were done. But as the men were jumping off the tanks, one of them landed right on a mine. I was the first medic to reach him. His feet and legs were blown off, blown away up to his groin. I have never seen anything so terrible, but here is what I remember most clearly. A piece of shrapnel had penetrated his can of shaving cream, and it was shooting a stream of white foam about five feet in the air. Blood spilling everywhere, and then this fountain of white arcing out of his back. The pressure inside the can kept hissing. The kid was maybe 19. Doc, I'm a mess, he said. I called in a medevac. I started packing dressings, then saw his eyes lock up and tried to revive him with heart massage. The kid died before the shaving cream was done spraying. Everything became weirdly quiet, considering the havoc, and then suddenly the LZ got hot and we took fire. Fifteen minutes of artillery and incoming mortar fire, then quiet again. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I took a piece of shrapnel in my back, but don't worry. I'm all right, though I won't have occasion to wear that tie soon. I didn't even know I was wounded until I felt the blood, and even then I thought it was someone else's. Strange, during that fifteen minutes of action I felt no fear. But there's usually not much contact with the enemy. Often you don't see a single VC the whole time. Days pass without any contact. They're out there, you know, yet you never see them. Just mines, booby traps. I'm only a medic, and my contact with the enemy is rarely direct. What I see are the wounded men and the dead, the bodies. I see the destruction, and I have begun to both fear and hate the Vietnamese. Even here, in South Vietnam, I can't tell whose side they're on. Every day, I visit a nearby village and help a local doctor vaccinate children. The morning after the attack, I felt the people in the village were laughing at me because they knew an American had died. Yesterday, I returned to the same village. Everything quiet, business as usual, but I stood there, surrounded by hooches, thinking of that dead kid, and for a moment I felt the urge to even the score somehow. What am I saying, sweetie? I'm a medic, trained to save lives. Every day I'm closer to death than most people ever get, except in their final second on earth. It's a world of hurt, that's the phrase we use, and things happen over here, things you just can't keep to yourself. I've seen what happens to men who try. They're consumed by what they've seen and done, they grow obsessive, and slowly they lose sight of the job they're supposed to be doing. I have no hard proof of this, but I think in this condition men open themselves up to attack. You've got to talk things out, get everything very clear in your mind. Lucky for me, I've got a buddy over here who's been under fire too and can understand what I'm feeling. That helps. I'm sorry to write like this, but in your letter you said you wanted to know everything. It's not in my power to say what this war means to you or anyone back home, but I can describe what happens, and if you want, I'll continue doing that. For me, at least, it's a comfort to know someone's out there, far away, who can't really understand, and I hope is never able to. I'll write again soon. All love. 
Henry. I'd snagged this letter from a box Mother kept in her room under the bed. There were other kinds of letters in the box, letters about love and family and work, but I didn't think Mother would miss this one, which was just about war. Father never talked much about his tours in Vietnam, but he would if I asked. Out of respect, I learned not to ask too much, but I knew about Zippo raids, trip flares, bouncing Bettys, hand frags, satchel charges and such, and when he was angry or sad, Father often peppered his speech with slang he'd picked up, like Titi, which means little, and Didi Mao, which means go quickly, and Sin Loi, meaning sorry about that. I tucked the letter away. I got the swing going real good, and I rose up, then fell, rose and fell, seeing, then not seeing. When the swing was going high enough, I let go and sailed through the open air, landing in an explosion of soft sand. I wiped the grains out of my eyes. My eyes watered, and everything was unclear. Things toppled and blew in the wind. A striped beach umbrella rolled across the playfield, twirling like a pinwheel. A sheet from someone's clothesline flapped loose and sailed away. I thought of my nightmare, a father's balloon tied to a string bean. I looked up at the sky, and it was black, with some light. There were stars, millions of them, like tiny holes in something, and the moon, like a bigger hole in the same thing. White holes. I thought of Mrs. Gurney and her blank eyes and the black pouring out of them. Was it the wind, a sudden gust kicking up and brushing my trunks? It happened so quickly. Had she tried to touch me? Had she? I stretched out in the sand. The wind gave me goosebumps. Shivering, I listened. From inside the house, I heard the men laughing, the ice clinking, the women shrieking. Everything in there was still hysterical. I'd never get to sleep. I decided to stay awake. They would all be going home, but until then, I'd wait outside. I lay there, very quietly. I brushed some sand off me. I waited. It was me who found Father that morning. I'd gone up to get some creosote out of the trunk of his car. It was a cold, gray, misty morning, the usual kind we have, and in the grass field above the parking lot there was a family of deer, chewing away, looking around, all innocent. And there he was, sitting in the car. I opened the passenger door. At first my eyes kind of separated from my brain, and I saw everything, real slow, like you might see a movie or something far away that wasn't happening to you. Some of his face was gone. One of his eyes was staring out. He was still breathing, but his lungs worked like he'd swallowed a yard of chunk gravel or sand. He was twitching. I touched his hand, and the fingers curled around mine, gripping, but it was just nerves, an old reaction or something, because he was brain-dead already. My imagination jumped right out of its box when he grabbed me. I knew right away I was being grabbed by a dead man. I got away. I ran away. In our house, I tried to speak, but there were no words. 
I started pounding the walls and kicking over the furniture and breaking stuff. I couldn't see. I heard falling. I ran around the house holding and ripping at my head. Eventually, Mother caught me. I just pointed up to the car. You understand, I miss Father, miss having him around to tell me what's right and what's wrong or to talk about Boom Boom, which is sex, or just to go salmon fishing out by Hat Island and not worry about things either way. But I also have to say, never again do I want to see anything like what I saw that morning. I never, as long as I live, want to find another dead person. He wasn't even a person then, just a blown-up thing, just crushed-up garbage. Part of his head was blasted away, and there was blood and hair and bone splattered on the windshield. It looked like he'd just driven the car through something awful, like he needed to use the windshield wipers, needed to switch the blades on high and clear the way, except that the wipers wouldn't do him any good because the mess was all on the inside. That was Matt Clam reading The Point by Charles D'Ambrosio. It's the title story in a collection that was published by Little Brown in 1995. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I read an interview with Charles D'Ambrosio where he said, Generally, I do everything I can to keep myself in the dark about the end of a story. In fact, my rule is if I see the ending too early, then that can't be the actual end. It's got to be something else, something I don't see. So, Matt, it seems to me that there's a kind of inevitability to the ending here. You know, the story takes its time, but you know you know throughout that at some point we're going to have to get to the father's death. And do you think that was always D'Ambrosio's goal here? I know too much about the writing of the story, maybe from just having glanced at some of his comments about it. But I think at one point he mentions in another interview a comment on the story that he 
didn't know there would be a letter until he wrote that line, I don't know any bedtime stories. And what is interesting for me is that that letter is actually a bedtime story for Kurt. It's a pretty gruesome one. <laughs> it is. And yet the reality, the thing that he's sort of fighting, thinking about every day, I think is even worse. In this letter, the father says, don't worry, I'm okay. And I think that part there is what the son clings to. Mm-hmm. I remember I, I actually asked your predecessor, Dan Meneker, if he had had anything to do with this story. And he told me that he did. And I asked him about the letter. And he said, you know, there was a little bit of talk about it, but they decided that it was exactly the right thing in the story. And, you know, it appeared in the Best American Anthology that year, which is confirmation of that. The story, with this strange structure, puts these two things together, this sort of story of the drunken, miserable, desperate, lonely woman attempting in some way to seduce mm-hmm. to seduce Kurt. And then the story of, of the horrors of war and the horror of, of the father's suicide. Mm-hmm. Why are these things in the same story? You know, I think um, the author and also the uh, narrator of this story have had to deal with suicide, um, mental illness in their families. And I think one of the things that he's trying to get across is that that kind of dark stuff affects people in one of two ways. People become either more or less intent on living. And in the story, you you see one person who, yes, on the surface, she's trying to seduce him, but underneath it, she's sort of losing a reason to live. Why do you think she's called Mrs. Gurney? I mean, the word Gurney in this context is so loaded with the father having been a medic and and, and a gurney being something you use to carry someone, you know, from, from a battlefield to treatment. Right. Well, of course, what Kurt is doing out there, I mean, he's probably in some ways functioning as the medic for his mother. He's certainly functioning as the medic for Mrs. Gurney, and he's also saving himself because there's no one else there to save him. But yeah, the story is full of these great little gestures like the name Mrs. Gurney who ends up on a kind of gurney being <laughs> in the in the wagon being pulled along herself, and, yeah. Right, and Mr. Crutchfield. Right. But I love that in good stories there is a comment on storytelling and I think you know she's kind of the meta comment. He has a story he wants to tell, which is to get her home, and she keeps on screwing up his narrative. Mm-hmm. He's struggling with the story, and she is this very amusing kind of interruptive narrative, which becomes the narrative. So you don't worry about the gun in the closet. You know, what draws you through is the chaos of the story, you know, and it's this ordered chaos or whatever the author has ordered it for us. The mess is all on the inside. That's the, uh, that seems to me that obviously the last line and also the, the theme of this story for everybody, the mess is on the inside. It's also about just the simple fact of getting inside people's heads, which is this underlying theme here. And we get, you know, a lot of it in a very awful way in the last few lines of the story. But also throughout the story, we get this sort of fascinating look inside people's lives. This kid is holding all of the secrets of the point. Everybody tells him their secrets, and he's the person who's carrying around all of the stuff that's inside people and somehow can contain those things. But I, I thought it was interesting that Kurt, he's 13, and he knows 
He knows enough to tell Mrs. Gurney that she'll be happy the next day he didn't look at her. Yeah. Now, I don't know many 13-year-old boys that would be able to say that in this situation. He has the maturity of a much older man, and and one wonders if, if he can contain that. Is it too much for him? Yeah. I mean, voice-wise, I guess he's slightly implausible, and it's something that I love about young narrators who are sort of wise beyond their years. But there is this idea in the story, which I think is very psychologically apt, which is that people who live in turmoil adapt and gain these amazing kinds of survival skills in order to deal with either, you know, a drunk and abusive parent or some other kind of upheaval in their lives. And and I think one of the things that you hear in Salinger and you hear in this story is, you know, a kind of freakish brilliance that's actually designed just to save this kid's skin. Which makes it more interesting that the father didn't survive what he went through. I mean, do you think we're supposed to know why the father killed himself? I mean, obviously there's there's post-traumatic stress disorder, there's, there's what he went through in the war, but this happens at a seemingly harmless time back at home. Do you think we're given clues as to why that happens? I think my understanding from Charles's essay writing is that, you know, he had a brother who committed suicide, another who tried, who's schizophrenic. And I think he has seen firsthand that there are people who simply couldn't be helped and that that very kind of hard truth needs to be stated. And he found that vehicle in the war veteran. It seems one of the one of the main points of the father's letter is that you can get through these things if you have someone to talk to. Now, Kurt, it seems doesn't really have anyone to talk to. He's a listener. Yeah. You think he'll he'll get through this? I can't help but think he'll always be 13 in my mind. We don't want him to grow up. We want him to go on taking all these sad people home. <laughs> we definitely don't want him. We want him to get a better job. <laughs> which, which brings me back to something you said at the very beginning, which is this is a, a sad story with very heavy themes. At the same time, there is a lightness to it and there's a humor to it and the, the conversation with Mrs. Gurney is actually quite funny. Yeah. I, I feel so in, in D'Ambrosio's writing there's there's this kind of heightened energy, you know, they have a kind of manic feeling and emotion piles on top of emotion. And that actually reminds me a little bit of the, the metabolism of some of your stories. Uh-huh. Do you feel like you have a kind of affinity with D'Ambrosio in in your pacing? I don't know. Although um you know, I was worried when I was reading the story that I was going to make her voice sound too ridiculous and dramatic. But in fact, she is quite a drama queen. And I she think is ridiculous and dramatic and, and sad at the same time. She yeah. is. And, and yet I think it is important to put characters in a situation where they have to sort of be stage worthy. And I admire the work he does in his dialogue to make sure that these moments have a theatricality to them. Well, thank you, Matt. Oh, thank you, Deborah. Matthew Clam's book, Sam the Cat and Other Stories, is out in paperback with Vintage. You can subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Also, the tablet edition of the magazine is available in the App Store and is free to subscribers. In the tablet edition, you can hear authors read their own stories. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. 
The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.